Hello, and welcome to the eTech Podcast with me, your host, Ryan Morn. I have been involved in the development of electrified vehicles and machines since 2005 as an engineer and a business leader. This podcast is the product of my passion for electric and autonomous vehicle technology. I'm here to share knowledge from some of the world's leading experts, as well as my own insights. Join me as we accelerate the transition to cleaner, safer and smarter vehicles and grow the industry around the world. So for today's episode, uh, I'm really, really pleased to be able to welcome Professor Paul Christensen, who is the Professor of Pure and Applied Electrochemistry at the University of Newcastle. And he's also the Senior Advisor to the National Fire Chiefs Council. Um, So really great to have you on the show, Paul. Thank you for taking the time out uh, from what I know is a really busy schedule to, uh, to join us. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. And if we could get started, just, um, you know, understanding a bit about your background and, and how you got to be um, be doing what you're doing now. Sure. Well, stop me if I bore you. Um, it all started about 10 years ago with a European Union grant to try and look at speeding up the assessment of lithium ion cells on the production line, basically being able to tell which were good and bad. And as part of that, I became, or I was asked to be involved by Nissan, who are just about starting to build a new battery plant. Uh, And they didn't know anything about chemical safety of lithium-ion batteries. So I went in to advise them, did that for the next three years. The EU grant turned into another EU grant. My relationship with Nissan continued. Eventually, the Nissan battery plant was bought by Envision, and I've continued the relationship with both Envision and Nissan. And meanwhile, I became involved with another research project called Relib, Recycling uh, and Reuse of Lithium-Ion Batteries. This was funded by the then new Faraday Institution, which was set up to uh, fund all research in the UK on lithium-ion batteries in particular. And whilst we, again, this was about trying to assess lithium-ion batteries, but this time, instead of new ones, trying to see if ones that were going to be used for a second life, so when an electric vehicle battery loses 20% of its capacity, it's no longer any use in an EV, but it still has huge value. But you have to know whether it's going to last long enough. And so using the methods we developed for the production line, we started looking at if we could predict how long a second-hand battery would last. Meanwhile, I got interested in safety because I started hearing about these electric vehicles that were blowing up. And also I was approached by somebody from the UK Metals Recycling Association because they were experiencing fires in their scrapyards. Essentially, it took off from then. I I contacted my local fire and rescue service, Tyne and Weir, and said, do you know anything about lithium batteries? They said, no. And I said, well, would you like a presentation? And I then started approaching other fire and rescue services and the kind of the word spread. And I created a, an email network and started a LinkedIn page. And things really just escalated from there. I started doing my own research on the ignition of lithium batteries, trying to understand thermal propagation in large batteries, and then made the discovery that people had been confusing smoke, gas, steam for the same thing, which was the vapor cloud, which is produced by all lithium batteries prior to ignition. And things really rocketed from there and took off. And that's where I am basically now. I've actually, it's the first time in my entire professional career I've actually felt useful. 
I'm sure that's not the case. Uh, so, so in sort of almost pre-story to that, are you a chemist by background? Then I, I, I started out uh, as a, a chemist. I've had a, a varied career, as you do. I, I did my PhD in photochemistry, and then went back to Oxford, where I'd done my first degree as an electrochemist, more particularly as a as somebody who was combining spectroscopy and electrochemistry. I spent four years back in Oxford. And then as with all good Geordies, the homing instinct uh, kicked in and I got the position of lecturer in the chemistry department in Newcastle University. But after I, I realized that I was never interested in making the shortest ever carbon-carbon bond or carbon-uranium bond, I wanted to solve problems. And most of my collaborations were in the School of Chemical Engineering. So in two, about 2004, somewhere around there, I transferred across to the School of Chemical Engineering, where I've been ever since. So proper science, um, you know, you, you, you are a scientist. A lot of people we get on the show are, um, are sort of from an engineering background. Ele electrochemistry obviously is a very, very important thing now. Battery, battery technology is, is electrochemistry. Did you see that coming in, in terms of your in involvement and interest in the field? Well, I, I, when I went back to Oxford as a what's called a postdoc after my PhD, I was brought in partly to, to look at, would you believe, electrochemical sensors for glucose, but partly also to look at methanol fuel cells. And so for many years, I spent researching methanol fuel cells. But I realized then, and this is probably not quite the right thing to say, but I realized then, and as I realize now, is that fuel cells... I don't think fuel cells will ever happen. Fuel cell-driven cars. We've had hydrogen oxygen fuel cells since 1839. They still really aren't commercial. We had hydrogen and oxygen fuel cell-driven cars, tractors, vans driving around in the 60s, buses in Canada in the 80s. But the problems, that the, the major challenges are still there. In contrast, the lead-acid battery was discovered in 1865 in France. It was commercialized almost immediately, and it's been commercial ever since. Lithium-ion batteries were essentially discovered in the mid-1980s. Large ones in electric vehicles, et cetera, started to appear in the 2008. So their, their commercialization has far, far, far outstripped that of, uh, of fuel cells. So you, um, you came out of fuel cells and, uh, and went into battery technology. Eventually, but I, I, I crossed a lot of other areas. I was, I, I'm very interested in solving problems. So I've been looking at water purification, novel methods of making organic chemicals. I'm a jack of all trades and a master of none. Really, <laughs> and as I said, it's only really since 2010 that I started being interested in lithium-ion batteries. However, my first paper on lithium-ion batteries, which was a spectroscopy paper, pure research, was in 1988 or 1989. And little did I realize then just how much involved I was going to be in lithium ion batteries. Wow. So very, very early, early stage. And it's interesting. Um, you mentioned in, in the, in your sort of more recent, um, career and, and experience that just to circle back on this point and, and, and make it for the, for the listeners that you, you were involved with the original, um, battery, manufacturing uh, facility setup with Nissan in the Northeast, which was a long time ago. And it was it 2010, 
2011. And it still remains at the present time the only battery manufacturing facility in the UK. I am from the northeast as well as as people from the regular listeners will know. Um, so we're both we're both northerners, and um, I guess a source of pride is that that was the first uh, giga plant in Europe. So with a, it, albeit only a, a couple of gigawatt hours of capacity, but um, still still there, still officially a giga plant, but often forgotten about uh, when people are talking about uh, giga plants, and, and then we've got actually this this uh, rich stream of experience. Um, in the in the north of England for you know more than more than ten years with high volume battery manufacturing and, and all of the things that go along with that, in, including the kind of work that you've been doing. Well, yeah, I mean, but I, you know, you should underline the fact that both Nissan, um, in terms of now of cars and including electric cars, but Envision in in terms of battery manufacture, have been leading the way, and they are truly excellent companies, excellent safety records very good at treating their staff um and uh, we should be really proud to have both of those in the northeast yeah no absolutely 100 percent uh it is um great in the in the region I and mean, i think the the giga plants often overlooked but it, but even more so some quite a lot of people don't kind of forget about the nissan factory being such um a major uh part of the the regional economy and and um and the uk and it was great to see actually Although it's not an EV, but but it will be um, eventually the Qashqai's um, the best-selling car in in the uh, in the UK now, which is made in Sunderland, um, alongside the the Leaf and uh, and the other new products that they've got coming through there. So really exciting new electric vehicle products coming out of Sunderland, and uh, and a huge ambitious plan, a new EV three hundred and sixty um, plan, which is uh, amazing undertaking that they're uh they're in, and massive invest billions of pounds of investment into um new manufacturing and uh, renewable energy generation and things so huge um huge huge asset for the region so mo- moving on then um so you, the, the background uh really fascinating um, background that you've got there and and i guess people just from the kind of titles and and a little bit of that might have picked up some of what your your sort of area of expertise in but can you just Talk to you know what you're doing now and and the, the, that your sort of current areas of um, expertise and, and research and the and the kind of things that that you're up to. Well, I I, ba- I basically have two aspects. Um, I'm part time at the university, and everything I do with first responders, I I don't charge for as a matter of principle. And first responders include fire officers, police. Um, I also do consultancy and I consult for a wide range of multinational, international companies. My interests lie in understanding thermal runaway and lithium-ion batteries, thermal propagation, and how to detect and how to suppress thermal runaway, thermal propagation, the fires and and explosions that are likely to arise. I do my own tests. Um, I think I'm about the only academic in the UK doing tests at the kind of size of lithium battery that we are doing. Um, My personal research is focused on modules, which there's, for example, 24 of these in a Nissan Leaf. Um, But I also advise and help and assist on research projects that include full-size electric vehicles, electric vans and things, Um, essentially looking at thermal runaway, thermal propagation, 
fire, explosion, etc., involving these. And I constantly monitor the internet for instance, incidents involving all sorts. And I my mission statement is to educate and inform every stakeholder, not just first responders, but the public, if I could, the government, local councils, everybody. Uh, my current concern is focused largely on micromobility, e-scooters, e-bikes, because these are actually killing and injuring people now. And these incidents and these injuries and deaths are entirely preventable through an education campaign. Um, I'm also interested in, obviously, scrapyards and materials recovery facilities, looping back to my, you know, to those early days of lithium battery safety research, um, because we are experiencing many fires in these facilities, and it's costing the country at the moment 160 million pounds a year estimated. This is going to rise, and this is just from small batteries, mobile phone batteries, etc. In the United States, it's costing millions and it's costing people's lives. I'm very much focused really on a kind of shouting as loud as I can to as many people as I can to try and get them to wake up. And I'm not demonizing lithium batteries. I think they're absolutely brilliant. As, as energy storage devices, they are fantastic. And if they are treated correctly and they're not abused, they are great servants and they are essential for things like renewable energy if we're going to meet the decarbonisation targets. But we must under, understand how to handle them safely, how to look after them, how to use them safely, and how not to abuse them. And ultimately, we need to understand what to do when they go wrong. And that is still very much a gap. And do you think, because it's interesting, um, you know, you, you, you talked a lot about electric vehicles and, and sort of full-size larger packs, but um, the EV industry is quite heavily regulated but but also self-regulates for you know passenger vehicles and, and trucks and things the safety standards and and what is kind of custom practice in that sector from a pack design validation testing is, is really quite you know it's 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 very very high very high but the, but, but this new problem that we're seeing with um sort of smaller battery packs in more kind of consumer um you know cheap, cheap products basically less regulated market and 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 actually to be frank some manufacturers who are cutting corners and putting products out there that are, are, don't even comply with the basic uh basics that that's uh that's a sort of new problem that we've that we've got that, that's growing and and quite concerning but it's it's not you know it's not a coincidence is it that that actually the the real challenge that we have is in these other products well, it, it, it's at the present time, it's very much the case that things like, as I've said, e-scooters, e-bikes, hoverboards, skateboards are, as you say, perhaps for, for reasons of terms of quality, but also in terms of the education of the people using them. I mean, if I can just take time out here and say, do not, under any circumstances, charge your e-scooter or your e-bike inside your home at all, ever. If you have to do this, don't do it at night, don't do it when you're asleep, and don't do it when you're out. And preferably do it somewhere where it, if the device does burst into flames or worse still, create a vapor cloud explosion, then make sure it's somewhere where at the very worst, it can't, it can't stop you getting out and at the best can do no damage. 
some of the videos online that you will see with vapor cloud explosions from these devices, it can be only a matter of 10 seconds between the first signal that the device is going into thermal runaway and a vapor cloud explosion or a violent fire. But yeah, it, it is the case that at the present time, the, the, the current and immediate threat to human life and health are these micromobility devices. However, as we move to more and more electric vehicles on the road, and whilst the, 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 the instances of spontaneous ignition of electric vehicles are a tiny, tiny fraction of those of internal combustion engine vehicles, nevertheless, as they become more and more involved in road traffic collisions, RTCs, et cetera, the challenges are completely different. So for, for a start, fire and rescue services can put out a, a, a conventional vehicle fire, typically in 20 or so minutes, and they can open the road within 50 minutes. We, the average time currently for electric vehicles is three to five hours. And as we saw, I think it was earlier this week, uh, there was an electric vehicle, uh, sorry, a transporter, I believe it had a tire blowout, which caused a fire, which then engulfed the electric vehicles on board, which were seven. The M1 southbound carriageway was shut for seven and a half hours, and both carriageways were briefly shut. So there are, at present time, we are still learning how to deal with these incidents. And when we end up with 30, 40, 50 million electric vehicles on our road, they're going to become as common as the instance we see with the current conventional vehicles. But the challenges are far, far different. And maybe it's, um, so that, that kind of, there's a few few questions that kind of come up there. And I was going to circle back to the, the smaller devices, but I, I think I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'll, I'll do that in a minute. What's the driving sort of fundamentals behind, uh, you know, this sort of, it taking a very long time to get a, a fire involving an EV under control? The, the single biggest problem is that the cells are within a typically a steel case. Typically, there'll be a metal plate underneath to protect them from debris from the road. And then they're surrounded by this enormous umbrella called the chassis, the seats, the, the, the windscreen, the windows of the car. So typically, when the battery goes into thermal runaway, one area will break, the weakest point, and that's where you will see the flames. But the gases are coming out at very high pressure. So this means you physically cannot get any suppressant, water or whatever, to the seat of the problem. And this then means that all you can do is cool it, which is not actually a very effective way. And the problem then is that if you do manage to cool it for some reason, and you think you've put the fire out, electric vehicles in particular are known to reignite hours, days, or even weeks after the initial incidents and can do so many times because the stranded electrical energy in them can easily cause an arc if the vehicle is moved. And stranded electrical energy is, is a, a big problem. Um, and okay, there's, there's only been around 300, 320 uh, validated electric vehicle fires and explosions since 2010. And this is from um, an excellent source of information, which is the EV FireSafe website, um, of which about 30% occurred during charging or shortly thereafter, and about 5% are actually vapor cloud explosions. 
So around 15 or so have been vapor cloud explosions. So you've got you've got the hazard of fire, you've got the hazard of vapor cloud. Now, if you kill the oxygen getting to the battery, that will cut the fire. So if you put a fire blanket over the vehicle, that will stop the fire, but it does not stop thermal propagation between the cells. So cell after cell after cell goes into thermal runaway and boils off the vapor cloud. That vapor cloud will leak through the blanket. And then you've got an explosion risk outside the blanket. If and when the fire brigade take that blanket off, there will be reignition. And that could easily lead to a vapor cloud explosion at that point. And indeed, there has been a small vapor cloud explosion during just such a test of a fire blanket. We have to understand the hazards completely. And at, that, at the present time, that's not generally known across the UK or indeed across the world. And, and you, you mentioned uh, vapor cloud a few times. Um, what, what, is the, what is that vapor cloud? It come from, the, the gases coming off the lithium battery comprise a mixture of up to 50% hydrogen, typically 30, 20% hydrogen, um, carbon monoxide, 20%-ish. Then you have carbon dioxide, you have hydrofluoric acid gas, hydrochloric acid gas, hydrogen cyanide. Then you have small droplets of the organic solvents that's inside the cells. And that's what gives the vapor cloud this thick white steam-like appearance, which has misled people into thinking it's steam or smoke, which is dangerous because steam or smoke does not explode. And then you also have percentages of ethane, methane, propane, etc. So you've got a toxic and flammable and potentially explosive mixture, which is essentially a, a vapor cloud. Wow. And, and, and that is produced by effectively the internal heat in the pack. Yeah, essentially what happens is, uh, if we take a step back, lithium-ion batteries should not exist. They are what's called thermodynamically unstable. That's because when you first charge them and the lithium ions go into what's called the anode, graphite particles of the anode, that's very high energy. And it's a higher energy than the solvent can tolerate. So that the, the graphite with the lithium ion ions in it immediately reacts with this, the solvents to generate methane, ethane, hydrogen, etc. these gases. Now, if that was allowed to continue, this also generates lots of heat. The heat speeds up these processes, generating more heat and more gases, and that can basically lead to thermal runaway, uncontrolled positive feedback. But what actually happens during that very first charge is at the same time, a protective layer forms around the graphite particles called the solid electrolyte interface. I often think that we, we call it the solid electrolyte interface because quite frankly, it conveys no information and it reflects the fact we don't fully understand what it is. But it doesn't allow the, the graphite to touch the solvent anymore, but it does allow free movement of the lithium ions so that the battery can continue to function. And any abrasion of that SEI, that protective layer, any loss, and you're into thermal runaway. And essentially, thermal runaway occurs most of the time because that SEI gets damaged or eroded. Yeah. And and in the in sort of old days, it was always um, growth of sort of needle-like uh, structures that were, were causing that damage. But that is based, seems to me to be something that has been kind of solved through the 
chemistry of the packs and it's no it hasn't been solved the the lithium dendrites were really associated with attempts to make lithium metal batteries into secondary batteries so they could be charged and discharged with lithium ions this dendrite formation is still believed well we do know it still occurs if the battery is abused so if the battery is charged too fast rapid charging of an electric vehicle for example we know that if you charge it too high a rate you generate lithium metal plating on the anode particles, which is the precursor to lithium metal dendrite formation. And if you charge at low, uh, low temperatures, similarly. And lithium dendrites have been blamed for fires and explosions, for example, um, involving battery energy storage systems that support the grid. As, as well as that, things like um, mechanical sort of impact damage to a cell i would think would be quite a would that be the, the sort of main challenge these days no it's one it's one of the reasons they put uh, metal plates underneath evs uh, but no the, the methods of abuse that typically cause uh, thermal runaway are overcharge penetration as you've cr- correctly identified crushing um operating at too high a temperature you can also have essentially thermal runaway caused by defects or contaminants introduced at the manufacturing stage. And that's the reason we've had hundreds of thousands of electric vehicles recalled in recent times. And also why we've had tens, if not hundreds of thousands of domestic battery energy storage systems recalled in Australia, New Zealand, the United States, and indeed the United Kingdom in recent years. There's a lot of quite complicated mechanisms and processes that need to be very tightly controlled in order to give a, a, a level of safety that that's acceptable in in these systems there is indeed and most but most applications of lithium-ion batteries such as electric vehicles they're designed for safety they are designed for safety they have many safety mechanisms in but there is a increasing increasing realization particularly, for example, with grid-scale battery energy storage systems that you also have to design for failure. You have to design such that if failure occurs, you do not get it spreading. So if, for example, two cells in a, in a system fail, it doesn't spread to all the other cells and cause a major incident. And, and that's been one of the challenges. I know, I know it's not the, the only thing, but obviously you have to connect cells together to make a battery. You know, that's that's the whole, so you've always got physical connections, but then you've got different types of cell, like pouch cells and cylindrical cells and prismatics. And the pet, you know, pouch cells have been very popular because of their sort of packaging efficiency, but then don't provide as much protection for cell-to-cell basis as cylindricals and prismatic cells do. And there's sort of lots of debate around that in terms of what's the what the best kind of solution is for for managing that propagation inside a pack? Well, I I would draw attention to the fact that, for example, the Nissan Leaf, it's very difficult to find instances of Nissan Leafs igniting. Even during the the Japanese tsunami, 23 Nissan Leafs were caught, caught up in it, and none of them ignited. And they all use pouch cells. As far as I can see from the statistics that are available to me it's mainly the metal can cells prismatic and cylindrical that tend to be igniting at least in in electric vehicles i i I couldn't swear to it 
and we'd need to check more carefully, but certainly most of the, of the makes and models of cars that seem to be suffering from problems at the present time involve cylindrical or prismatic cells. And it's certainly true that the, the fire and explosion behavior um, of lithium ion batteries is linked not just to chemistry and topography of the battery, how physically how it's put together, but also in terms of what's called the form factor, which is indeed the shape and size of the cells. In other words, cylindrical, prismatic, or pouch. Do you see much work kind of going on in in that um, in that space? To you know, is there an optimum solution, um, or is it is it still kind of early days in terms of looking at that? I I have absolutely no doubt that we will learn to manage the risk, and that will be a combination of of design of lithium-ion batteries, of electric vehicles, et cetera, grid-scale battery energy storage systems. It will also, at the other end, be in terms of developing procedures and suppression systems to deal with fires and explosions, and indeed preventing explosions wherever possible. That's already actually happening a lot, particularly driven by America and the, the codes and standards that they're developing for, for battery energy storage systems. But we have to always be aware that if you come if you compress a large amount of energy in a very small space, irrespective of what form it's in, whether it's a battery or it's petrol or whatever, if that energy gets out in an uncontrolled fashion, then you're in trouble. But I do honestly believe that we will eventually manage the safety aspects of lithium-ion batteries, as we have done with everything from petrochemical industry to the nuclear industry. You know, nuclear submarines run around all the time. We have nuclear power plants. We have any number of, of chemical process industries with excellent safety records. It, is it, um, so you, 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 you sort of see techniques. Um, so one, one of the things I've heard about uh, people doing with uh, vehicles that have had a fire is this sort of um, immersion technique where they basically pick the vehicle up and dump it in a skip full of water or, you know, yeah, I'm afraid that the the uh, jury is very much out on that. Tesla, um, quite rightly, in my view, absolutely state their vehicles must not be dropped into containers of water. And I, because of the, my links with first responders, I get lots of information about incidents. And quite often, when the, the, the car or whatever the device is, is dropped into water, it continues to burn or even generate explosive gases underwater. And it's, it's not rocket science. Basically, the undamaged cells, each one of which is at 4.2 volts if it's fully charged, it's still at 2.5 volts, even if it's flat, by the way. Even if it's at zero state of charge and 2.5 volts, that was still more than enough to electrolyze water into hydrogen and oxygen. So within the pack, the undamaged cells will be generating hydrogen and oxygen, which you could easily see feeding the fire inside the pack, even though it's underwater. Yeah, that's um, literally going to drop you into hot water. <laughs> yeah. Um, so not not so good. Um, uh, so so circling back, then um, you you mentioned earlier about the sort of smaller devices like the e e bikes and scooters and and that kind of thing. Um, and, and there, there is such a, there's actually a big, big problem, um, with that kind of device. 
what, what, what do you think the reasons behind that are? Um, why do you think we're seeing such uh, problems with, with, is it fundamentally the battery cells or something else about how those packs are put together? It's a combination of factors. First of all, the, the CE mark, of course, that's on all electrical equipment doesn't have any relevance to lithium ion batteries. And we import a lot of these devices. Secondly, um, particularly e-bike riders that are delivery personnel, they are making their own batteries so that they can swap the battery during their round. And they're using cells purchased online. Now, my view is that that unregulated trade in, in lithium-ion cells online should be killed tomorrow and killed dead. Similarly, the unregulated trade online of second-hand electric vehicle batteries should be killed dead now. There are perhaps six or more different chemistries of lithium-ion batteries. They're a family. There's not one lithium-ion battery. There's a family. Each of those different chemistries requires a different charging protocol and a different charger. People do not understand this, and they can quite easily use the wrong charger, or often these cells that are sold online do not come with chargers. They are then charging these devices indoors, and that's where the fatalities, et cetera, are occurring. In six cities across the world, just six cities, between March and October of this year, 22 people were killed, including members of three generations in one case, and hundreds of people have been injured. And some commentators say that across this world, there have been thousands of house fires and thus lives damaged or destroyed. And it can be avoided. After all, our government has banned micromobility devices from all the spaces within parliament certainly within the houses of Westminster. They are protecting themselves, but they've been very quiet about the risks to the rest of us. We've had tragic cases. Just recently in Bristol, an Afghan refugee who came to this country for refuge and safety, charging his e-bike on the 16th floor of a block of flats. The e-bike went up and he had to throw himself out the window to stop himself being burned alive. And of course was killed very sadly. This was entirely preventable. And forgive me, but I get extremely angry about this. The government needs to issue guidance now to all owners of these devices. And as I've said, do not charge them indoors. If you have to charge them indoors and you shouldn't, then do not charge them at night. Do not charge them when you're out and charge them somewhere where you can all get out if something goes wrong. In Brisbane, while I was in Australia, they had a, an e-bike, went into vapor, into thermal runaway, generated the vapor cloud. It blew out the windows of the flat and it moved the partition wall between the two flats. It is a violent explosion. And lithium batteries produce very large volumes of the vapor cloud. So even small lithium ion batteries like e-scooters and e-bikes can cause major deflagrations, as it's called, mm. explosion. It, it, it's an interesting thing you know first of all i you know agree with you it's it's it is it is tragic and the sort of current situation that we have is is very concerning and and it's not just this country the uk it's it's more more widely um and and more needs to be done and and, and i will always say you know one fire is one one too many 
but it i almost wonder if it's like we've become so familiar with the technology it, it's in so many devices that we just take for granted and maybe people don't quite appreciate the engineering that goes into making a robust reliable nobody does i mean that's why i mean that's why i say my mission is to is to educate all stakeholders we have an ex if you'll pardon the pun an explosion in grid scale battery energy storage applications in this country the lithium batteries are absolutely brilliant for storing the energy from re renewable energy devices so it can then be delivered to the grid um sun doesn't always shine especially in northumberland and uh, the wind doesn't always blow um but you need so you need to store the energy and they're brilliant at that but Local council planning departments do not have a clue about lithium-ion battery risks and hazards. And unscrupulous developers can, can basically essentially slip planning applications past that, at the very least, could be extremely hazardous for fire and rescue services attending any incident because the fire suppression and detection systems are completely inadequate or actually inappropriate. And local planning officers won't need, won't know this. And... I'm hoping that this is now changing, but you know, local fire and rescue services haven't had formal training on, on lithium-ion batteries, electric vehicles, grid-scale systems, and I'm trying to change this, as, are, as is the National Fire Chiefs Council. But they won't, you know, many of them will not recognise that handheld CO2 fire extinguishers are actually completely useless in a battery energy storage container and indeed could result in explosion and the death of any operators. So there is, and people have died. The two Chinese, two Chinese fire and rescue services uh, personnel were, were killed in an explosion in Beijing. Um, and four fire and rescue officers were badly, really severely injured in an explosion of a grid scale system in Arizona uh, in uh, 2019. And we've had 65 so far fires and explosions involving grid scale battery energy storage systems since 2012 and 60 over 60 of them are since 2018 we need to educate now everybody people shouldn't be throwing their lithium-ion batteries into the mixed uh, recycling they should most certainly not be throwing them in the bin because that's causing the fires in the in the recycling facilities and eventually if we're not careful people will die in those facilities because they won't realize what the hazards are so we need to educate. The government needs to take the lead on this and protect its citizens, which after its, after all, is its first responsibility. Yeah, it, it, it's it's um, such a big. In some ways, it's really simple, you know. But it's it's a big it's a big topic, and dealing with you know the population on mass, getting that kind of messaging out there to everyone consistently it's it's very uh it's very difficult to manage that and, and i think combined with it's so easy to buy stuff now um that that is kind of in well it's not imported technically you're buying it on whatever online platform but you're buying it from someone in asia and you are the importer but i just dis i disagree with about the complexity all the bb all the government has to do is to put an uh, an information film a few couple of minutes on the BBC, uh, maybe every night for a week, and then once a week for the next few months, and the message will get across. Um, it's not rocket science, but it could, it would, and it will continue to save lives should they actually do that. Yeah, 
so so one of the things that is being proposed at the moment um is a new uh, set of safety standards um, or in, in improved safety standards for lithium batteries of varying different sizes. So big, big packs and small packs and um, p particularly aimed at improving safety on smaller uh, batteries that you would get in the, in sort of um, e-bikes and, and such like. Um, and the, the European commission is, um, has proposed some, um, some new uh, standards. Do you, do you think, that will help, like um, in improving the the standards on the production side. We first of all, standards are voluntary, and it's not clear how effective that can be. But also, I'm well aware that there is politics always involved, and the EU, the new EU batteries regulation, which I believe you're referring to actually sidesteps one of the most important issues, which is how to prove the safety of a second-hand electric vehicle pack. The, the problem is that there are no tests. There are no electrical electronic tests at the present time that are accepted that can do this. And the European Union has sidestepped the issue and is just requiring that all the information stored in the battery management system of an electric vehicle when that battery goes for second purposing, second use, is available. But that in itself is inadequate. You do need a test. And secondly, that information is valuable intellectual property. And the manufacturers are very unwilling to give that information up. And there is a push for the use of second life electric vehicle batteries. And I believe that that even more than the present situation we are in, that I think represents an even greater threat because the batteries have had a first life. They could have been abused. They could have got lithium metal plating. And to dash into a, an industry, pushing an industry that uses them, unless we only use them in so-called safe applications, you know, places where people are not going to get hurt or killed, then I, I think... Codes and standards are a good step forward. But again, we must fully understand the risks and hazards, and we, we must not let politics, be it domestic or international, get in the way of the safety of our citizens. Yeah, well, yeah. The, the second life thing, uh, I've lost count of the number of times that people have, have asked me about, um, you know, they... they either as a sort of hobbyist or actually businesses taking components from um, scrap electric vehicles and using them and, and, and you know, in conversions typically of classic cars or, or something. So EV conversion kits and um, the, the, the problems with that are, you know, ma massive. Um, obviously, the, the manufacturers spend billions of pounds developing all the functional safety and control systems and i mean on the battery pack alone the bms and things let alone the rest of um the, the vehicle architecture so the traction inverters and such like and then basically there's an aftermarket industry where they're ripping all of that stuff out and kind of hacking the controls and electronics and it's just like oh this is not well good. they're also using uh batteries from crashed electric vehicles and my view is very simple if your beautiful E-type Jaguar that you've upgraded to electric with a, the battery pack from a crashed electric vehicle bursts into flames 
on your front drive. It's your own stupid fault. That particular use of crashed electric, well, any, any crashed electric vehicle, the battery should go immediately for materials recovery. It should not be used again under any circumstances. But again, there are no regulations. There are no standards. There is nothing governing that trade. No, and, and unfortunately, it's become quite a big market, and, and not just in the UK, but in, in other countries where the demand for um, these sort of aftermarket conversions is, is high and they're using those parts um, and, um, yeah, sort of making them work, but without really appreciating what the, the risks are, I think. Um, and and it's, it's a matter of time, I think, you know, be that a battery pack or something major going wrong with a traction system or something. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, there are any number of videos where an electric vehicle sustains some kind of damage and it might be hours or even days later that it goes into thermal runaway. And the time between, the, for example, the first sighting of the vapor cloud, the white vapor cloud, and the subsequent vapor cloud explosion can be less than six seconds. And the instance in Shanghai, uh, in an underground car park, six seconds from the first appearance to the, of the vapor cloud to the explosion that took out the cars either side. And of course, the car responsible. Yeah, yeah. And um, one of the other things that you mentioned, um, and actually, I, th I think it's a big part of it with... Um, like actually a part of the risk is around the high voltage electrical systems and the arc risk, you know, you, you mentioned arcs earlier. So the, you know, we, we're dealing with, you know, really high current uh, systems, high, high, high voltages charging and, and um, running these things. And there's a big sort of risk of, um, you know, of, of arcing from, failures within stuff that, that isn't necessarily within the battery pack but then the the arcing from the electrical system could then cause an issue in in the battery pack was that the majority actually of um of problems are sort of things outside the battery then oh well we to be frank we don't actually know um precise in many cases precisely what caused the incident because in many cases the car is completely burnt out and uh, i don't know if you've seen i mean for example Again, another example of insanity, but in America, they had a number of electric vehicles. Estimates vary from hundreds to thousands that were submerged in Hurricane Ian in Florida. Once dried out, at least 14 of them have ignited. And if you look at the carcasses that are left, there's virtually nothing left. But the insane thing is that the, uh, the, the insurance companies are then auctioning the, the ones that haven't yet gone up to try and recoup their losses. And that strikes me as, again, somewhat insane. <laughs> yeah, not uh, not good. Yeah, it, it, it always makes for a, quite a troubling picture. I think the, the tendency to use a lot of aluminium in um, electric vehicles as well, um, obviously that uh, contributes to the, um, the, the, the kind of pile of mush that you're left with uh, at the end if, if you do have a problem. So, so just I'm conscious of the time, bringing things to a to a to a wrap up. Looking forwards to the you know to the future, what are you what are you working on? What are you excited about that's coming down the line? Where where do you think we're going to end up at? Um, I mean, you've always already said you're you're a big fan of of lithium batteries, and I think it's kind of um, you know we can see so 
so many new markets and, and, and products coming to the market. What, what are you, what's your outlook for the future? Well, uh, I think we will manage the risks. I, I very much look forward to the Envision Giga factory uh, being built and then, and then functioning. I really, really hope uh, the British Volt Giga factory happens. Um, I, I know Camus. I, I often go for walks along there. Um, and I'd love to see, you know, that area reinvigorated and, and employment there. Um, I think it's been abandoned for too long, essentially. Um, we will see a plethora of new makes and models of electric vehicles, which may or may not be a, a good thing, because as long as we don't standardize the design of the battery, then recycling is essentially impossible. And unless and until we can recycle those battery packs at ultimate end of life, we're just not going to have enough lithium on this planet. And we have nascent recycling industries. We've got some good companies who are starting to look at repurposing and recycling. And in other words, materials recovery or second life of electric vehicle batteries. But unless and until that industry becomes a major industry and gets the full support it deserves, and everybody should realize that our scrap yards, our waste recycling facilities are an essential part of our decarbonization strategy. And if they haven't, if they don't get the kind of support they need, simply that decarbon decarbonization strategy will fail. We're gonna to have to watch out for, you know, the big, at the moment, the problems in scrapyards, et cetera, are small batteries. Wait and see what happens when the big ones arrive. Scrapyards are gonna to have to rethink everything if they're dealing with road traffic collision cars at the moment, they just pile them on top of each other. They can't do that with EVs. They're going to have to separate them by 15 to 20 meter exclusion zones. I look forward with dread to the first incident in a, a car stacking parking system in London involving electric vehicles. Um, and I look forward with interest to the next generations of lithium ion batteries and whether indeed they will fulfill their expectations. It, it's been, um, we probably could have gone on for, for hours and hours because I think we've only really touched the tip of the iceberg there in terms of the discussion, but it's been really interesting um, and fascinating talking to you. Um, I will, I'll put some links in the show notes. So if people listening, if they, they want to find out more about what Paul's doing, um, I'll put some, some links down, down below um, that you can find to, uh, to, to, to catch up with more of, of what he's doing um but uh thanks for taking the time to to join us and um thanks for the thank you for the insights and the the conversation it's my very great pleasure anytime brilliant thank you paul